Good evening and welcome again. Um, Like Jennifer said, my name is Janet Taylor, and this is my very first Dharma talk. So thank you in advance for your patience. Um, I've been practicing Vipassana meditation for um, only about two and a half years now, and um, I have a respectable practice, and I've done some sutta study with Shaila and on my own, but I'm very, very much a novice. So... um, probably much more than many of you are here. Um, So I'd like you to think of my talk tonight not so much as a Dharma lesson, but maybe as a mutual inquiry into the Dharma. Um, I may express some ideas that you find questionable or strange, and if that happens, I would invite you to let that inspire you to do your own research, and then um, come and tell me what you find out so we can keep learning together. Um, 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 um. Tonight's talk is a continuation of the Eightfold Path series. Tonight I'll be talking about right thought, which is the second factor of the path following right view. And I hope you'll forgive me if I read from my notes, because it's a long talk and there's no way I'm going to remember all this. Um, The Pali term for right thought is samasankapa. Samasankapa has also been translated as right intention, right resolve, and right aspiration. So you may hear me use these terms interchangeably. Right intention is the volitional property of thought. Right intention indicates um, proactively directing the mind toward a specific goal. In chapter 48 of the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha said, And what bhikkhus is right intention? Being intent on renunciation, being intent on freedom from ill will, being intent on harmlessness. This is called right intention. So renunciation in this context means renouncing the desire for sensual pleasures. Sensual pleasures consist of pleasing visual forms, pleasing sounds, pleasing odors, pleasing tastes, pleasing bodily sensations, And some interpretations also include pleasing (coughs) thoughts and ideas, since um, the mind is also considered a sense organ in the Buddhist um, perspective. Intention always precedes action. In the Buddha's teachings, actions are threefold. There are actions of mind, which are thoughts, actions of uh, speech, and actions of body. Right intention is important because it determines whether our actions are karmically wholesome or unwholesome. By the law of karma, all of our actions bear fruit. They can produce good results or bad results depending on the intention. We use right intention to ensure that our actions are are wholesome, which reduces suffering and betters our chances for liberation. When one's actions are always wholesome and and one has impeccable ethics, The hindrances of sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and doubt do not arise, and the mind is more susceptible to awakening. In um, Sutta 19 of the Middle Length Discourses, um, this is a discourse on right thought and wrong thought. 
the Buddha divided thought into two classes. In one class are thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. In the other, are class, in the other class are thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, and thoughts of non-cruelty. Before his enlightenment, the Buddha examined these thoughts as they arose in him, and applying mindfulness to these thoughts, he understood their wholesome and unwholesome nature. When a thought of sensual desire, ill will, or cruelty arose in him, he understood thus. This thought has arisen in me. This leads to the affliction of others, the affliction of myself, and the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, leads away from nibbana, or nirvana. When I considered this, this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the other's affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided in me. When I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought of sensual desire, ill will, or cruelty arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. Then when a thought of renunciation, goodwill, or compassion arose in the Buddha, he understood thus. This thought has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own affliction or to the other's affliction or to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom, does not cause difficulty, and leads to nibbana. If I think and ponder upon this thought, even for a night, even for a day, even for a night and a day, I see nothing to fear from it. So let's take a look at each intention. The first intention is renouncing the desire for sensual pleasures. In Sutta 13 of the Middle Length Discourses, the Buddha describes the mass of suffering caused by sensual pleasures. He includes physical pain and discomforts one must endure due to one's job. Worry and grief over not being able to make ends meet. Worry about protecting what one has acquired. Grief over losing what one has acquired. Quarrels and physical fights motivated by sensual pleasures. Death and deadly suffering from wars motivated by sensual pleasures. Painful punishment due to crimes motivated by sensual pleasures and even rebirth in unhappy destinations, perdition or hell, due to misconduct of body, speech, and mind, motivated by sensual pleasures. Can you relate to this mass of suffering? All this suffering is caused by the clinging to sensual pleasures, even in the most mundane way, such as um, suffering or worrying about making a living. I worry about having enough money when I retire um, in order to maintain and protect a home. And maintaining all my possessions is constant work. Having a home and possessions is gratifying, but it's also suffering. The Buddha teaches that one should clearly see the function of sensual pleasure, how it gratifies, and how clinging to it causes suffering. And one should understand the escape from bondage to sensual pleasures. According to the Buddha, the escape in the case of sensual pleasures is the removal and abandonment of desire and lust for sensual pleasures. This clear seeing of, gratif of the gratification, danger, and escape in the case of sensual pleasures is right view. 
and right view is the foundation for right intention. If you were here last week, you heard Shyla's talk on right view. She emphasized that right view isn't adopting the Buddha's ideas, but is seeing for yourself the truth of experience. Seeing for yourself that all experience is impermanent, subject to suffering, and has no self at its core. If I can see my own experience and how, and how clinging to sensual pleasures leads to suffering, then I'm not so attached to those sensual pleasures. Renunciation is actually a joyful experience when it's supported by right view. In Sutta 137 of the Middle Length Discourses, the Buddha said, When, knowing the impermanence, change, fading away, and cessation of form, one sees it as it actually is with proper wisdom, that forms both formally and now are all impermanent, suffering, and subject to change, joy arises. Such joy as this is called the joy based on renunciation. When by knowing the impermanence, change, fading away, and cessation of sounds, of odors, of flavors, of tangibles, of mind objects, which are thoughts and ideas, both formally and now are all impermanent, suffering, and subject to change, joy arises. Such joy as this is called the joy of renunciation. These paragraphs are repeated in this sutta, um, and equanimity is substituted for joy, where the last line is, such equanimity as this is called the equanimity based on renunciation. So clearly seeing the impermanence of all things and the suffering associated with clinging to them naturally inclines the mind toward renunciation that is accompanied by joy and equanimity. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting with the Santa, Santa Cruz Sangha at their new location. Um, they have a lovely kind of warehouse that's been converted into a meditation hall. And in it, they have this beautiful bamboo floor that's polished, smooth, and, and beautifully sealed, and it's gorgeous. And I was sitting in the back um, behind the chairs listening to the talk, and I noticed that all the chairs were metal, and all the feet of the chairs had these little pads on them uh, to protect the floor from getting scratched. Well, one of the chairs right in front of me uh, had a pad that was just about to fall off. And, and it was just hanging there, and the, the metal thing was just right about on the floor. And my, my first inclination was, of course, to scooch over there and put the pad back to protect this beautiful, gorgeous floor. Um, but I didn't want to disturb the Dharma talk, so, so I waited, and I just listened, and I watched my mind considering this floor. And then something shifted in my mind, and this image unfolded. And I noticed that, of course, there were dozens of metal floor, uh, chairs in this room, and that eventually the floors was, go was going to get scratched. And then my mind went a little bit further into the future, and I started seeing scratches all over the floor. And it went farther, and I started seeing the floor deteriorating from age, and then I went farther into the future, and I saw it losing its varnish. I saw it aging, crumbling, rotting, and just turning into dust. And, and with that image, my, my clinging to protecting the floor from its probably its very first scratch just completely vanished. Um, you know, 
I knew the scenario in my mind wasn't necessarily going to happen, but I clearly saw that the in inevitable fate of the floor was its eventual destruction. And this was clear seeing. Um, when, when, the clinging, when the clinging in me was released, it, it, when it vanished, I actually felt joy. I felt elated. And the condition of the floor was, was it just no longer mattered. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, my clear seeing is also impermanent. <laughs> At this stage of my practice, spontaneous renunciation, like I just described, happens infrequently. But it does happen. And it happens more often when I'm consciously working with renunciation in my daily life. By that, I don't mean that I'm necessarily renouncing sensual pleasures every day. What I mean is that I try to be mindful of strong desires when they arise and look at the clinging around them and just try and release some of that clinging. In my own meditation and mindfulness practice, I've noticed that sensual desire is based on an attachment to self-identity. Although now I'm wondering how that uh, incident in the Sangha with the floor was attached to my self-identity, although maybe it was because I had this impulse to like protect the floor, like, you know, I'm someone who's going to protect the floor, uh, do a good deed or something. Um, I've noticed that, uh, I've noticed that sensual desire is based on attachment to self-identity because sensual desire, like all desire, is an expression of personal preference. The art I hang in my house reflects who I think I am, as well as the food I like to eat, the music I prefer, and so on. I can't think of a sensual pleasure that I didn't, don't relate to from a standpoint of whether I like it or whether I don't like it. I think the Buddha's teaching on renouncing sensual desire can be seen as a, as a component of his teaching on not-self, on breaking the view that there is a self at the core of experience. And I found a sutta that backs this up. In the chapter of the sixes of the numerical discourses, the Buddha said, And what, monks, is the outcome of sensual desire? One motivated by sensual desire produces personalized existence born of this or that desire, belonging either to the meritorious or the demeritorious. This is called the outcome of sensual desire. So to paraphrase, when one's thoughts and actions are motivated by sensual desire, that desire produces a sense of self or personalized existence. A meritorious desire would be something like uh, the desire to clean up the environment. Or a, de a demeritorious desire would be something like the desire to take something that belongs to somebody else. So lately, when I work renu with renunciation, I started to consider how my desires reinforce a self-image. Whenever I see myself suffering because I'm clinging to a desire to have things a certain way, I'll ask myself, who is it that I'm telling myself I am? And I know that's uh, bad grammar, but it works. <laughs> For me, adding the consideration that I might be actively generating a self-identity with every desire can sometimes help loosen my clinging, because then I start questioning whether the self-image I'm creating is really me or who I want to be. If it's not, I'm more likely to drop the desire. 
although this is still reinforcing a self-identity. I'd like to emphasize the distinction here of renouncing desire itself rather than the object of desire. In the suttas, renouncing sensual desire means letting go of clinging to what we want. If I refrain from acting out on a sensual craving without eradicating the craving itself, I may be renouncing the thing that I desire, but I'm continuing to cling to it. It's the clinging that's the problem, not the object of desire, because it's the clinging that causes suffering. In the same numerical discourse as I previously mentioned, the Buddha said of pleasurable forms, sounds, odors, tastes, and physical sensations, these, however, are not truly sensuality. In the Noble One's discipline, they are called merely cords of sensual sensual pleasure. Sensuality does not lie in the world's pretty things. A man's or woman's sensuality lies in thoughts of passion. While the world's pretty things remain as they are, the wise remove the desire for them. As lay people, we aren't expected to renounce all desire for sensual pleasures. The important thing to understand is that clinging to sensual pleasures causes suffering and hinders awakening, and that more clinging leads to more suffering, and less clinging leads to less suffering. The next two right intentions are being intent on freedom from ill will and being intent on harmlessness. In positive terms, these are being intent on goodwill or on loving kindness and being intent on compassion. I don't think I really need to say much to convince you that uh, we need to be intent on goodwill or compassion. I assume that we already all have these intentions. If we didn't, we probably wouldn't be here. In the suttas, loving-kindness is described as the genuine wish for others to be happy and at ease. The Buddha taught that thoughts of loving-kindness should be extended to all living beings everywhere. This is an excerpt from the Metta Sutta, which is the Sutta on loving-kindness. Even as a mother protects her life, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the sky and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing, walking, sitting, lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this reflection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. The Buddha similarly teaches that one should practice compassion with the same kind of pervasiveness. I'm struck by the power of the uh, uh, the power of goodwill as it's described in the suttas. In chapter nine of the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha teaches, monks, if someone were to give away a hundred pots of food of, as charity in the morning, a hundred pots of food at midday, and a hundred pots of food in the evening, and another person were to develop a mind of goodwill even for the time it takes to pull a cow's udder, either in the morning, at midday, or in the evening. This would be more fruitful than the former. That just boggles my mind. (laughs) The Buddha also taught that the practice of loving kindness and, and compassion can dilute karma to the point that it bears no fruit. Practicing loving kindness and compassion can even take one into the first jhana. This is a pretty powerful tool. 
I think what's hard about the intention of loving kindness and compassion is putting them into practice in our daily life in situations where anger and frustration are involved. In regard to this, the Buddha gave a discourse on five ways to subdue hatred toward another person. In other translations of this discourse, hatred has also been translated as grudge or annoyance. So I think it, uh, that we can apply it to any, any feeling of ill will toward another person. So the five ways to subdue hatred toward another person are to develop loving kindness or compassion or equanimity for that person or pay no attention and give no thought to that person or direct one's thoughts to the fact that the person is the owner of their own actions and that whatever they do, good or bad, they will be heir to that. In other words, the person is generating and inheriting their own karma. This seems like very practical advice. I've tried these and they work. I generally take a little while, uh, it generally takes a little while uh, for feelings of ill will to fade, but while I'm still feeling them, I'll keep a repeating phrase such as, may you be happy, may you be at ease, or um, she's the heir of her own karma, or, <laughs> yep. Um, or if my feeling of anger and frustration is very strong and I can't detach or access those um, thoughts of loving kindness, then I'll prevent any further ill will by thinking with um, deliberate intention, just no ill will, no ill will, no ill will. I'll, I'll you know, keep my mind occupied with that thought until the feeling fades and I can deal with the situation with a little more compassion. Um, I do this until the feeling fades, right? I don't know if um, any of you are familiar with the 12-step programs, but this practice of using intention to replace, good thought, uh, replace bad thoughts with good thoughts uh, reminds me of kind of using the 12-step slogans in, in stressful situations. Right intention, I think, requires strong mindfulness to be able to catch those intentions of ill will or harm before they lead to unwholesome actions. If I'm not aware of my intentions, and I'm often not, then I'm in danger of falling into the habit of cynical, negative, and derisive thinking whenever I encounter something unpleasant, such as um, listening to political rhetoric, perhaps. In Sutta 19 of the Middle Length Discourses, the Buddha said, Bhikkhus, whatever a bhikkhu frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. If he, if he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, ill will, or cruelty, then his mind inclines to those thoughts of sensual desire, ill will, or cruelty. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of renunciation, non-ill will, or non-cruelty, then his mind inclines to thoughts of renunciation, non-ill will, or non-cruelty. So right intention, I think, requires not only consciously generating thoughts of loving kindness and compassion, but also diligently guarding the mind against thoughts of ill will or harm. So what supports right intention? How can we, how can we get ourselves to be intent on, on renunciation and loving kindness and compassion? Well, for me, there are a few things. 
One is really seeing the truth of suffering and being willing to sit with it. And the ability to see the truth of suffering, I think, requires meditation. It's easy to see, um, it's easy to see suffering in the world, but I think it's hard to see the truth of suffering. And seeing the truth of suffering is seeing the cause of suffering in my own mind. And, this, um, and I don't think that's really possible without meditation. I may be wrong, but that's my opinion. Sometimes I reach a point where I feel like my mind will never be free because I, I seek so clearly how it clings to absolutely everything. I don't mean gross clinging, like clinging to wealth or fame or anything like that, but I mean the subtle clinging to preferences associated with my self-image. It's a constant and continuous and infinite and I see no freedom in it. I find this feeling of bondage painful. And my reaction to this discomfort is an intention to be free of it. The more painful it is, the stronger my intention is. My resolve is also supported by my faith in the Buddhist teaching that liberation is really possible and that there's even a chance remote as it may be, that it could happen in this lifetime. I'm also supported by my faith that my efforts will eventually pay off. And this comes from the experience of practicing. I see myself changing because, my meditation, because of my meditation practice, and that gives me the energy to continue trying. Another thing for me that supports my right intention is knowledge that my good intentions are wholesome and right no matter when they arise, before or after I've done or said something I shouldn't have. So whenever I get around to the thought of good intention or goodwill or compassion, I try to acknowledge the wholesomeness of my good intention so that I, so that I don't get into the habit of beating myself up for not thinking of it sooner. And practicing loving-kindness and compassion toward myself also makes it easier for me to offer it to others. I find that um, being able to care for myself has made, a lot, made it a lot easier for me in, um, made it a lot easier for me to care for others in a non-controlling and detached way. In this case, detached meaning equanimous. Caring for myself well, I think, helped helps prevent any feeling of resentment or obligation around caring for others. And, um, well, what about you? Do any of you, any of you have methods or things that you do to help support right intention? Or ideas of ways, or ideas of ways to support right intention, or even just areas where you notice it hard to practice right intention? And this is not a rhetorical question. I'd actually like to open it up right now to, um, to find out if any of you have ways of practicing or ways that support your right intention. I'm, I'm really interested. So let me give you a second to think about that. True. I'm reading a book right now by Matthew Ricard, who is the translator for the Dalai Lama into French for many years and just titled Happiness. 
and he talks a lot about renunciation. And um, one of the things that been helpful. Yeah, that's good. I've noticed, or I've read, and I've that practice of um, seeing myself as. Is this one? That practice of seeing myself as um, and and another as being, you know, kind of one and the same, definitely supports compassion. I've noticed that. Leanne. Um, I've been playing attention myself. My whole life is a little embarrassing, but when I come up against a chore or something that I notice I have ill will around, I feel resentful or I feel like, oh, I have to do this again. And before I start the chore, when I know it's going to trigger something, I will um, try and set my attention to um, just be with what I'm doing, to be mindful or to be um, aware of what is going on beyond, you know, outside of just me. So that, mm. um, and that, that really helps. It, it like takes, takes me out of my own little self world and puts me into more reality. And it's much easier to do any kind of chore that way. Hmm. That's very wise. Yes, Maureen? Um, the thing that I do is more like dealing with negative situations. I'll find myself uh, brewing resentment of some, some kind, and I'll catch myself. And it's like, oh, look at this. What's your intention here? Hmm. So I look at my intention, and perhaps my intention is quite negative. But when I discover that, if I'm quiet enough and I shut off the little loop that reinforces that the they did, they did thing, I can feel my own hurt. Mm. So that whatever it is in me that has become wounded, that kicked off this thing that, that wants to generate the resentment, I can feel that and I can detect that. And it's like, and then I see what the root of that was. And that sort of melts down the intention because the intention was this this configured all out of my own uh, proliferation. You know, whatever it was that I generated around this situation, my, my feeling sad or disappointed or or angry about something just escalated something to the point where I had bad intention. And then I could adjust, it's like, oh, okay. Hmm. Nice, thank you. <coughs> Yes. Well, that practice I do whenever somebody makes me angry or frustrated, I just imagine that person, you know, at that moment as a little kid. Mm. And somehow the immediately it creates compassion in me for that person. And I just see him as just a little kid in this big body, you know, just trying to, you know, prove, you know, prove <coughs> to show that, you know, something to me and it's just a little kid and it's just like suddenly all my anger would go away and I just see a little child this big body I don't know <laughs> that works for me nice thank you thank you well I think it is that in terms of a feeling I get like I'm stuck like glue mm. and I see myself in an image of just uh, letting go and um, then I have time to think about 
Yes. You know, one thing I think that works really well is just try to keep a smile on your face all the time. Hmm. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. You mentioned the uh, step slogan, then I have a new toy in my, my new cell phone. It lines my name when I put it in sleeping mode. I, I can add a phrase, phrase mm -hmm. and I add a, uh, live and let live. Uh -huh. So every time I put it in this mode, if I go, mm -hmm. if I even try to go back and uh -huh. So you set a reminder for yourself right. then. Good. Nice. Well, it sounds like you guys know how to practice right intention. I'm impressed. Thank you for the tips. Sometimes intentions are hard to discern. I've noticed that they can be also very subtle. In meditation, I've been able to notice the presence of subtle intentions. I notice intention when a thought arouses clinging. It's usually clinging to some kind of self-image that comes from the attachment or aversion to whatever popped into my head in the first place. I perceive intention when there's clinging because clinging feels like um, grasping at something. You know, I, I can feel the volitional quality of it, like there's a drive towards something when I'm clinging. I think all clinging has intention behind it, the intention to have, to be, or to not have, or to not be. Again, it's that selfing. Maybe there's intention behind every thought. I know I have habits that I perform seemingly without intention, but I think that maybe the intention has just become habit as well. Maybe every thought itself is an intention. Can there be thoughts or actions that are without intention? Can there be intentions that are free from desire? I don't know the answer to these questions. And I'd like to leave you with these questions for contemplation. So maybe this week you can consider all the different types of intentions that arise and see if they're wholesome, unwholesome, or neutral. Maybe see if you can get more intimate with how intention feels when it arises and, and what strengthens your good intentions. And definitely practice loving kindness and compassion. So with that, let's close with a little meta-meditation. Just as I wish to be happy, may all beings everywhere be happy, free from stress.
just as I wish to be safe. May all beings everywhere, without exception, be safe and protected from harm and danger. Just as I wish to be healthy, may all beings be healthy, free from pain and disease. Just as I wish to be at ease, may all beings live with ease, free from struggle and conflict. May all beings be at peace. May all beings live in harmony. And may all beings everywhere be freed from suffering. We have about four minutes if anybody wanted to have um, some more discussion or questions. Drew? Another thing that came up in the book is sort of total synchronicity that we're talking so much about renunciation. Um, Ricard said that most people, when they, you talk to them about renunciation, they feel like it's empty and sterile and barren and they have to give up everything that they like. And he made the same point that you made. It's not the giving up of the thing that you like, it's the giving up of the, the craving or the attachment. Mm -hmm. And he, he made a metaphor that I thought was so apt. He said, renunciation is like letting a bird out of a cage. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes? Mm -hmm. Hmm. I'm not sure I have the experience to answer that. Yeah, could, could you please stand up I, uh, and repeat the question? It's very interesting. Intentionality. Yes, um, I think that I don't think there's really that much difference. Speaking from my own, you know, limited knowledge, I don't really think there's that much difference because, in the Buddhist perspective, um, action, like I mentioned before, is thought, speech, and and word, and um, the Buddha also 
associates intention or, or volition with karma itself. So it's almost like the thought actually does create the reality. So I, I, I don't think there is really that much of a, a difference, personally speaking. Okay, well, I'd like to thank you for coming. And next week we will have our next uh, talk, which is on, let me remind myself what, <laughs> I should know this. I'm still a little nervous. Right speech. Right speech.